the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? Welcome to What a Life with Paul Batura. Paul is a best-selling author, writer, Fox News contributor, and vice president of communications at Focus on the Family. This is a show about the extraordinary value of every life. It's a show about movers, shakers, and culture shapers. And now, here's your host, Paul Batura. Well, thanks, Dr. Bill. Welcome to the show. You know, there are a lot of things you could be doing, a lot of shows you could be listening to, and you chose this one. And uh, we don't take that for granted. So thanks for thanks for your time, and special thanks to the Salem Media Network for distributing the program, and to Matt, who engineers it on the other side of the glass. Uh, okay, our show this week is going to be a bit of a nostalgic journey, at least for me, and I think for you as well. It's been 30 years since we first saw Scotty Smalls introduce himself, maybe awkwardly, to eight new friends on a makeshift baseball diamond in the Sandlot, a heartwarming film that was inspired by real childhood events of the movie's co-writer and our guest today, David Mickey Evans. Uh, The Sandlot's been called the greatest baseball movie of all time, and I would not quibble with that as a fan and as a um, a watcher, lover of baseball movies. Uh, Evans is now 61 years old. He's directed plenty of projects since, but none that have endured and endeared him as much uh, to the legions of fans and followers as The Sandlot. So, David Mickey Evans, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, my gosh. Thanks for having me on, Paul. I really appreciate it. And, by the way, I'm 60. You're so- I'm going to shave that one, one year. <laughs> <laughs> Duly noted. That's important. Yeah, we every year counts is- when we get up to be our age. age. Yes, sir. Yes. <laughs> Well, hey, let me ask you this. Um, it's hard to, for me as a as a as a viewer and as a fan of the film. It's sort of hard to believe. I'm 51 years old. Uh, it's hard God. to believe that it's been three decades. Um, and I know that's because uh, you know I may be a little in denial, but I'm also this movie is timeless. And I'm curious, is that the same for you? I mean, does it does, have the years just flown by? And uh, why do you think it has that timeless feel to it? Uh, well, that's a really good question. I mean, I think the obvious is that uh, it takes place, you know, in the past, in 1962. Um, it's a slice of all of their lives. It's one summer, uh, and, you know, we shot it on film. So it's on film, and it's going to stay that way forever. It's just sort of come to think of it over the years as this moment, a summer, but a moment in their lives caught in time. So... There's no chance that none of this is, you know, I didn't think of any of this while we were making the picture. It just has turned out that way. Uh, that it'll never be anachronistic hmm. ever. You know, there's nothing in there. Everything in there befits the time and the period. And there's nothing in there. Like for instance, you know, look at a movie from 10 years ago and look at their cell phones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes you right out of it. Go, oh, that's an eighties picture, nineties picture. But anyway, there's that. Um, I think it deals with some pretty universal and timeless themes. You know, um, it has been called, like you said, the greatest baseball movie ever made. And it's odd that the greatest baseball movie ever made isn't really about baseball. 
It's about friendship, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think, I, I hope, and I'm grateful that those things still seem to be important. You know, to people, especially the audience. Yeah, I mean these these are characteristics and qualities that uh, transcend generations, as you as you mentioned that. So when you're yeah. out there talking, I mean you've been talking about the film now for thirty years. Do you sure. ever get tired of it? I mean, do you see new angles to it that you missed twenty years ago or ten years ago? Oh man, that is, nobody's ever asked me that question. That's a really good question. Um. Huh. I'll tell you this, I don't go looking for it, um, but occasionally I'll view the film, uh, and this really isn't an answer to your question, but nonetheless, I'll see stuff that I've forgotten about. And I go, oh, yeah, we did a good job on that, or, oh, boy, that was really tough to shoot, or, boy, we got lucky there. I mean, the entire thing is pretty much lightning caught in a bottle, and uh, it's almost impossible to replicate that. In a mm-hmm. um, listen, there's three or four things that are not in the film, that were in the script that I shot and that we cut into the film, and then I uh, was made to take them out for time uh, purposes. Mm-hmm. And there's two or three scenes, and one of them, and I wish that that was still back in the film, but as the film sits uh, you know, now, um, and as it was when I, when I finished it, um, I guess a good answer to your question would be, you know, I, uh, it's very difficult for a director, certainly not a writer, to say that movie's 100% of what I meant. You know, that was my intent. I'd say that the soundlight gets close to 90%, and that's that's extremely rare, Yeah, you know. Um, I had a lot of uh, leeway and a lot of um, freedom, you know, making that film. So, um, you know, uh, pretty much if I thought it was funny, it went in the movie. You know, yeah. uh, or, or if it fits. So I guess, you know, after all these years, uh, most of the decisions that we made while we were making it were right, you know, or at least, uh, it, they turned out to be, you know, uh, beloved and, um, and like you said, stood the test of time. Yeah. Now, uh, I'm, I'm a writer, I'm not a screenwriter and it's hard for me to see things edited out of things I write. How hard is it for a filmmaker who not only wrote it, but then shot it and has to cut it. Like, is that, is that pretty brutal? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I do. I mean, obviously it depends on the, the love you have for what you're being told to remove. Right. Uh, and those things in the sandlot, I loved them a lot and I tried very hard to, to let them, uh, to get them to let them stay in. I mean, it would have added another four minutes or five minutes to the film, but you know, you got a lot of chefs in the kitchen at that point and everybody's got an opinion and it ended up the way it did. I want to, yeah, I, the answer to your question is, yeah, it's difficult. It's so, never easy. So I want, to, I want to talk all about your childhood, too. But, I, sure. they, but uh, let's, talking about what was cut from the film, what, what was? I mean, is, there, can you, is it easily describable? So uh, uh, you remember the scene, they go to the uh, carnival and they, you know, eat chewing tobacco and they all get sick. <laughs> and the next day, the next thing you see them, they're walking out of Vincent's drugstore with a new baseball. Uh-huh. Well, also in that scene, if you look in their hands, they're holding packs of baseball cards. Sure. And the scene that was cut out is right after that, right? And it's on the sandlot as they're walking in, and uh, the narrator's saying, you know, after we all uh, got over acting like big shots, we swore it off, blah, blah, blah. And then something amazing happened, and it was an omen. And what's cut out of the film is Benny, uh, and this is another thing that's cut out of the film, 
that summer there was a subplot, like a B story, where he was trying to steal as many bases as Maury Wills that summer because that's the summer Maury Wills on the Dodgers. Oh, yes. Was broke. Yeah, you're right. Right, summer of 62. Uh, yeah, right. Exactly. That's right. So he, uh, there was all this material of him stealing bases and, you know, keeping uh, pace with Maury Wills. And when he comes back onto the Sandlot after that terrible night, he opens his baseball cards that he bought at Vincent's and he gets the impossible. He gets Maury Wills. Five Maury Wills cards all in one pack. Oh, man. Okay? Yeah. As you know, you're old enough to know that you, that doesn't happen right. you know, when you get your baseball cards. So that, to them, was this massive, you know, a, a, a big omen or a sign from God, if you will. And he says, I got to play, guys. I got to play right now, you know, because he's baseball. He is baseball. And uh, so that was cut out, and that kind of it kind of bothers me to this day, and I well, I keep waiting for him to give me a director's cut so I can put it back in. Yeah. It hasn't happened yet. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a lot of people who would love to see that. Um, boy, base- oh, yeah, you, so. you just talking about buying baseball cards. I would, We would go to Howie's Candy Store. I, I grew up in New York on Long Island. And uh-huh. There were those three different types of packs when I was a kid. There was the wax pack, which was kind of thin. There was the fatter yeah. pack. And then the three, which you could yeah. see the top three and the bottom three, right? And yep. you kind of, I, I always thought those were kind of sucker packs because you kind of, you know, you were kind of drawn to buy the one because the card you saw, but then everything else in the middle was usually right. not so great, <laughs> right? Right, you get, you know, a Reggie Jackson and, you know, five, you know, Bob Eucher. It wasn't, it wasn't good, yeah. So let's, you know, the, the movie is called The Sandlot. Obviously, everybody knows it's it's based because of them playing on a sandlot. But you grew up, sure. you didn't grow up playing on a sandlot. Tell no, us about that. too much. <clears throat> yeah, my, my little brother and I... Uh, still very close to this day, but when we were kids, we were super close, and we lived uh, in the northeast San Fernando Valley in Southern California, and uh, at that time, uh, you know, there was the vestiges of orange groves and stuff, but it was pretty built out by then, um, meaning, you know, the post-World War II, three-plus-two ranch home building boom had sort of settled down, you know, by the time we moved into our neighborhood, and it was all asphalt, asphalt concrete, you know, even the uh, elementary schools. You know, wet grass. It was all Southern California asphalt. So that's where we baseball, where we played in our street, which was asphalt. Mm-hmm. And uh, we played park league a little bit because we were pretty poor, so we really couldn't afford, you know, the organized little league. We did one year. Our grandparents uh, sent us some money for it. Uh, but we played park league and in the street. And uh, I'll tell you what, you know, a bad hop on the hot asphalt, you learned to feel the ball really well. <laughs> So there was that. Um, but on the other hand, we weren't very well liked at all on our, our block. And, yeah, we got picked on and beat up and stuff. And my little brother is is the kid who went over the fence in real life. He went to get a baseball. And there was a dog back there, this ill-treated poor dog. Big buddy, big dog. And uh, it bit him. He got the ball, but it bit him. And uh, that's where the whole idea came from. Hmm. We're talking with David Mickey Evans. He's the creator, the writer of The Sandlot, you know, the iconic film that's now in its 30th year. Uh, I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life, Lessons from Legends. We're talking with a legendary filmmaker here, and uh, <laughs> this, is a, this is a treat. Um, David, I know the, the twist of the movie that a lot of us are just kind of humbled by. When It's a great yeah. movie, and we're going to talk about it, but you mentioned your, your childhood, and the movie is based loosely on your childhood, but... But there is a major twist that you decided when you were writing that screenplay. Um, 
let's let's hear about i want to get more about your background but this is profound i think what you decided to do you talk about not being the most favored kid on the block paint that paint that picture for us what was that like as a kid well it was you know uh, as those things tend to to do as we get older you know they solidify those memories into forms that may or may not have actually happened like i wrote this uh, early 90s, let's call it, probably started in 91. Um, and so they were fresh enough. And, yeah, they, they, the kids in our blocks were bullies. Uh, you know, we were treated really bad, got beat up all the time, um, didn't really have many friends, and they never let us play with them, you know, whatever sport they were playing. So that's how my brother ended up going over the fence. They lied to him and said, hey, uh, go get that ball and we'll let you play with us. Mm-hmm. Because, and, you know, we were all poor, and if you had a baseball, you had a single baseball, not a bucket of baseballs. <laughs> mm-hmm. So... You know, he went and got it. The dog bit him. He brought the ball back, and they all laughed at him, and he's got a torn-up leg. And I had been fired off at my first studio picture, and I was driving home up the 405 freeway, which is just a nightmare. And it occurred to me, this this uh, story from my childhood, and I said, man, that's a good idea for a movie. You know, baseball goes over backyard. There's, you know, a dog back there, and they got to get it back. That was it. And... uh I started thinking about it, and I said, who wants to see a movie about a bunch of bullies and two kids that are beset by them? <laughs> well, not me. You know, I didn't want to see that movie. And I, and I figured nobody else did. So uh, it also turns out, you know, as that story came back to me, Paul, as I was on the freeway, I realized, I guess I was 28, 29 years old or something at the time, that those guys were still in my head taking up space. Mm-hmm. And it was all negative, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, that was, uh, I don't call it a wake-up call, but it was, it was, I don't know, a little startling. So by the time I started writing it, I said, no, man, they got to get the ball back and somebody's got to be a hero. And the rest of the thing came from that, including the necessity of taking all those bullies and turning them into heroes, which I did. Mm. Uh, or those kids that were bullies. You know, I didn't base anything on anybody, but nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, uh, and... It worked out in the script, you know, the writing of it kind of, you know, you hear this from writers sometimes, and usually I think they're, uh, you know, lying is, oh, it wrote itself. Well, of all the things I've ever written, that wrote itself the most. You know, Mm -hmm. it was still, you know, all the trials and tribulations you go through, but I guess it's because I was so familiar with it and, you know, changing, you know, bad guys into good guys as I went. But I think the upshot of it was that I didn't realize is once you got done with it, they they didn't take up negative space in my head anymore. It was this, uh, unintended, you know, uh, really good collateral thing that happened. This was like a catharsis. A catharsis. Yeah. I, I was, just, uh, well, I'm done with them, you know? Yeah. So have any, yeah. Have any of them knowing who you are now and what you accomplished, have any of them reached back to you to kind of fess up or to apologize? Or no, to- no. One guy is actually the opposite. One guy sued me for like five million bucks. Oh boy! Um, claiming I based a character on him, ruined his life, and all that sort of thing, which of course is nonsense. It's absurd. Yeah. And he didn't win. We won. But that was that was pretty much the only the only one. Yeah. Once a bully, always a bully. I guess, right? Kind of. Yeah. They don't change their stripes, do they? So I mean, the uh, forgiveness is not a theme in the movie, but the, the this is something a lot of people struggle with every day. I mean, they're the burdens oh, yeah. we carry. The 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 heavy, uh, the bullies that we've dealt with. 
I mean, this this was cathartic, you said, but I would imagine, did did it manifest itself in other areas of your life in terms of just being relieved of that of that weight on your shoulders or that mental oh, anguish? Yeah. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean it made life lighter. You know, you're not carrying refrigerators or acne safes of uh, <laughs> you know, uh negativity and uh, you know, I'm not gonna say hatred, but you know, ill feeling, all that all that sort of bad stuff. It kinda just evaporated, you know, pretty quick too. Yeah. And uh, it, it, I didn't, it, it wasn't an intention of mine to, uh, you know, that, that wasn't a goal. Um, and I didn't realize it was happening until it got done. And I actually, actually, I'll tell you what, I didn't really uh, know that until I saw the picture in front of an audience for the first time. Hmm. And uh, they, you know, laughed where they were supposed to laugh and, got excited where they're supposed to get excited and all that. And it, it worked. It had them, you know, the movie got them, uh, and got them involved. And, uh, it was then, you know, at the end, when you see the picture of the boys and stuff, I said, well, that was, that was a bit of a good usage of my time machine, <laughs> changing the past, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. A, a certain grace note in your life for sure. So hundred percent. you love baseball as a kid. Of course, you're playing on the asphalt, the blacktop. When did you get the love of filmmaking? I mean, when did you think, I think I want to do this. May of 1977, when I went to see Star Wars at the Americana <laughs> theaters in Panorama city in the summer, uh, May. Yeah. Uh, I went with, I went with a friend. He had seen it and he took me, I think I was 14 years old. And uh, that first shot, when the destroyer comes, you know, over the top of the frame, I, I thought I was in space. Wow. <laughs> I, I had no idea how they did that, but it enthralled me. I mean, I went back to see the movie, I don't know how many times. And, uh, you know, but the first time it was, I don't know what that is. I don't know how they do it, but I want to do that. I remember it. Mm. So that was, uh, I mean, you know, all kinds of other movies had sure. you know, huge effects on me and, and stuff as a kid. I mean... You know, I grew up in the early 70s, mid-70s, so I was still a Disney kid. You know, not that we got to go all the time, but uh, Mickey Mouse Club, all that sort of thing, and their movies. But I'd say uh, Star Wars was the one that put it over the top for me. Um, but there were plenty of others that, uh, you know, I don't know, sent me down that path. Yeah. You know? Well, you're growing up I, in, in the Hollywood. I mean, you're growing up in that vicinity, right, of movie-making capital of the world. Yeah, I mean, we were far out in the valley, so it was kind of one of those things, oh, it's so close, but so far away mm. kind of thing, you know? And you choose uh, to Loyal, Loyal to Marymount, but you study film, yeah. right? Yeah, I did. I started as a business major and stopped that really quick because I couldn't hack it. And uh, then I went to the communication arts department, yeah, and I stayed there for, I don't know, six years, six and a half years. And uh, it was a terrific place. I mean, I was probably the last class that was being taught to edit on film because everything else was sort of coming in, you know, and the, I mean, there were, uh, yeah, the people were saying, Ooh, it's going to be digital soon and all, but we learned on a cam and a movie all and real film and all that sort of thing. And I'm glad, I'm grateful. I got to learn like that. And I was taught by some of the, some of the last guys that were, you know, there, Ben Abaney and all these terrific people. At Loyola. Yeah, I had a good time there. It was a great school. When you're a film uh, maker or a film student, are you thinking in terms of, I want to go work for a big studio, or are you thinking, 
I want to I want to make my own film, and I have ideas of the films I want to make. Uh, both, you know, at that time today, boy, you know, it's like the Wild West again out there. Like it kind of was in the eighties with uh, cable. You know, all of a sudden there's need for you know five hundred channels and all this content and movies and this and that. And it's the Wild West, but nobody's making movies. Well, how can that be? It was weird. Um, uh, wait, say that again, Paul. Well, I'm just I wondering thought. if, yeah, if you're when you're when you're a filmmaker or a student, are you thinking of a particular screenplay you want to write, or are you just going to be happy to go work for Sony or for uh, you know Paramount Pictures? Is that uh, I guess everybody has got a different calling in life. What, what, where were you? Where was your head? I mean, you, the Radio Flyer was your first big film. When, right. did, when did you get that idea? Uh, after college, you know, I had no prospects. You know, you can't do much with a communication arts degree back in those days when you walked out of the the school. Um, so yeah, I mean, I had dreams of working for a studio, making a big movie, making uh, that sort of thing, and I learned very quickly. Uh, and people, you know, Hollywood was making ton of movies at that time. Indie films were all over the place. You know, there was TriStar and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, so yeah, I wanted to work for, uh, uh, for studios, but my thing it's turned out is really, I just like, just, it's just me is I like to sit down in a blank screen and make a world and write something. And I write it for me. And if I like it, turns out the odds are other people might like it too. And then, you know, it's a blessing and a curse working for big studios, you know? Mm. Um, you have a lot of resources, all the resources in the world, but you also have a lot of people that uh, have been giving uh, opinions that have authority that might not know anything. In fact, a lot of times don't. Mm. And, you know, just getting back to that question you asked a little while ago about, you know, when they take stuff out of your film, does it hurt? Yeah, it does. I mean, and then when you're sitting there with a screenplay that absolutely works, and they're telling you, yeah, well, I, we have some thoughts. Let's change all this. And I've gone through these things where some of those uh, notes have been good, and it's helped. Very rare, but it's happened. You know, 80, 90% of the time, it's an absolute waste of time. You know, you're sent on a fool's errand doing a bunch of stuff to satisfy some egos. So I don't, I don't like that part mm-hmm. at all. Um, I just like doing it for me. Mm. Like I'm going to go do a picture in uh, uh, Iowa. I've done a couple pictures there true story about uh, coach ed thomas from 2009 and um i've got that indie financed uh you know and i get i get the creative control to make the kind of picture tell the story i want to do it um otherwise why am i here Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know you know i say i can make this movie i have this vision i can tell you what it is give me the money let me make the movie or get somebody else um didn't used to be that way you know Back in the day, you'd scratch for every gig you could get because, you know, you never know when it's going to end. Yeah, I mean, the, indus- um, the industry has changed dramatically in the 30, 40 years that you've been in it. Uh, has it oh, cha- yeah. changed for the better or for the worse? Man, that is a tough question. Right this second, obviously, I think that the, the answer is the worst. Um, I think cinema's going away, um, but that collective subconscious need that humans have to gather in a cave before a fire and watch, you know, the shadows dance on the walls, you know, going to the movies. Um, it's not what it used to be, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, the stuff I have at home, uh, 
is fantastic, and I love watching movies. But once in a while, like Oppenheimer or something like that, you got to go to the theater. So, um, but you know, look, it's like anything else. Back in the day, in the '80s, it was VHS tapes. They wouldn't give us a piece of it as theaters because oh, we don't know if it's going to make any money. And it was cable TV. Oh, we don't know if it's going to make any money. And on and on and on. DVDs. Every new platform. Every new this. Every new, you know, technological revolution or change in the industry. The very first things that the producers yeah. and the MTV go, go to is like, well, we have no idea if this is going to work. Now they're saying that about streaming, and they've been streaming for years now. They're making nothing but money. It's a cash cow. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I have another interview after this, and it's it's about AI and how it affects the the thing. And look. It, Cut to the chase. Reducto ad absurdum. Okay. Is it going to happen? Well, you know, that's why we're fighting, you know, to keep your hands out of the creative part of the thing. Uh, I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Well, I don't know. We're, the voice you're hearing is David Mickey Evans. He's the creator, uh, among other things, of The Sandlot, that iconic baseball movie, the greatest baseball movie of all time. I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life Lessons from Legends. When we come back, we're going to dig into the movie. A lot of you just have seen that movie so many times, and there's all kinds of fun stories attached to it. Uh, so hang on through the break, and when we come back, more from David Mickey Evans. Well, welcome back. I'm Paul Batura. You've been listening to What a Life Lessons from Legends. Uh, our guest today is David Mickey Evans. He is the creator, the writer of The Sandlot. And, you know, we're in October now. It's baseball season, postseason baseball. And, um, boy, there's never a bad time to sit down and watch this film. So if you haven't seen it in a while, uh, pull it up. Some of you may have the DVD. It's certainly available to stream. Uh, it is a great movie to watch 12 months out of the year, but especially in October and uh, David, thanks for hanging on here for our uh, second part of the show. Oh, no worries. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, I, I want to ask you something. We're going to jump into the movie here. I, I pulled up. I I always find it interesting to read reviews from things. And, you know, the New York, yeah. Ti- the New York Times uh, panned The Sound of Music. They did not like it. <laughs> they didn't like it. And yeah. I pulled up the review of yours. You probably don't remember this per se, but the... Oh. Uh, they referred to it as uh, that your talents appear to be wildly out of proportion <laughs> to the subjects. Uh, and uh, they said he has directed and co-written The Sandlot uh, as if it were stunningly momentous, even though nothing about it, his modest coming-of-age comedy demands anything like this awestruck approach. The fact that this movie is 30 years, it's the greatest baseball movie of all time, First of all, what when you saw that review, what did that do to you? And then second, how how good does it feel now to to be sitting where you are and to know that you just completely blew that review out of the water? Well, you know, I mean, not to gloat, uh, yeah, I saw plenty of those kind of things. Hey, I did a picture, a couple of Beethoven pictures, and I swear to you, Paul, some you know eager beaver reviewer used these words to describe Beethoven's third. It's, okay, I swear I use these words. Pathetic, B-A-T-H-E-C-T-I-C, pathetic subtext. (laughs) (laughs) I had to look it up. Oh, my. But anyway, and yeah, it's as stupid as it sounds. So, 
okay, you know, I think he's calling my movie corny, <laughs> okay? Um, and what did Disney say when his daughter, uh, his daughter was getting into adolescent age and says, oh, daddy, all your movies are so corny. And he said, that's all right, sweetheart. Tens of millions of people eat corn. <laughs> so, Very true. Yeah. You know, I mean, everybody's got an opinion, right? Um, maybe, you know, I don't know. Uh, is it overwrought? That kind of. But the defense is that the whole movie is shot from the points of view of 9, 11, and 12, and 13-year-old kid, right? And they still got a foot in childhood. So when they see a dog, they don't see a dog. They see some big Ray Harryhausen crazy thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, today, a kid with a good imagination that gets outside and away from his computer games, you know, if he sees a monster, well, it's going to look like, you know, whatever, Halo, uh, you know, or you know, wh- whatever they're playing. So those things were absolutely authentic. And my thing, I told my DP and my actors and stuff, we made this picture. I said, look, we got to be funny. We've got to do all this stuff, but, uh, you know, the bywords here are honesty and authentic. Just make it honest and authentic. And I think it is. To this day, I think it's 100% honest and totally authentic. Yeah. And, um, you know, all of those quibbles and quabbles, you know, so what? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, really. Those of us who are parents, I mean, I've got three boys, and, and well, the, the people who love your films are so hungry for good wholesome family films that, you know, have a little edge to them maybe from time to time because that's life. Right. Um, but I mean, I know that everybody who runs into you thanks you in different ways. And, um, you have a great story about running into a, I mean, I'm in Colorado Springs doing the show. I've heard you tell the story. I wonder if you could share about a guy you ran into up at DIA, which is the Denver international airport. Do you remember? Do you remember that? That's the best. Yeah, sure. Of course. I was going through uh, Denver International, and I guess to preface this, it's like there's a lot of, you know, pretty famous pieces of dialogue out of the Sandlot, and it became famous because people keep repeating them, you know, when it gets into the zeitgeist and the and the lexicon and such. And, you know, can you do that on purpose? I don't know. If you can, I'd like to meet the guy because <laughs> I can't, you know. It's just it happens or it doesn't, and we got extremely lucky that there were some stuff like so I'm walking through the airport and uh it's like in the middle you know where the big rotunda is or you know mm-hmm. and I'm walking through and coming at me I can see this young man he must be let's call him 30 you know and uh he's clearly harried you know like he's you know difficult traveling and he's got like this three-year-old kid with him this little boy who's got you know like the Ninja Turtles backpack and all the cool stuff but this little guy is dragging his sneakers like, I don't want to go anywhere. I'm done flying. And now he just bursts out crying in the middle of the Denver airport. And, man, this guy had some lungs, this little dude. And uh, his dad, who's been walking, clearly trying to make a plane, stops, like, I don't know, 10 feet from me, drops his backpack in total exasperation, and looks at his kid and goes, you're killing me, small. <laughs> and I'm standing there. Oh man! And I look up, and I look up to the big man and go, "You got to be kidding me! Really? <laughs> All right, here we go." You know. And I said, "Hey," and he looks at me. He's really upset. You know, he's he's having a bad day, and his kid, you know, he's a kid. He's doing kid things, but my gosh, how difficult! 
I said, hey, uh, you don't know me. He's looking at me like I'm crazy. I said, but I'm going to blow your mind. And he goes, he just looks at me. And I go, I, uh, that's my line. You're killing me, Smalls. And he still doesn't understand. And I go, I wrote it. That's my movie. I'm the director and writer of that movie. And now he starts looking at me, not only like I'm crazy, but that he should probably call security or something, you know? And I go, no, dude, listen, I know this sounds weird, but I'm going to give you my email. Here's my email. Email me, and I'll send your little boy a bunch of posters. And oh, stuff. man. And, and then you'll remember this is a good day. And he did. And I did. And it was great. Oh, that's got to be one. Yeah. Of, I mean, it's a super satisfying moment for a filmmaker, oh. right? I mean. Oh, my gosh, Paul. That's, I'm not going to say it makes it all worthwhile, but that is a big cherry on the top. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's the line we hear all the time. I mean, we, we've uttered that in our family. I know lots of people. Uh, who have done the same. You're, that line, yeah. of course, was just delivered perfectly by Patrick Rena, right? Yeah, Rena, yeah. So, Rena, tell me about the, the casting process for this. You're, you've written the script. I mean, what's that like to cast a movie full of kids? That can't be easy. No, no, it's, it's about, listen, it's the, one of the hardest things to do. My casting director at the time, God rest your soul, Sherry Rhodes, was an absolute angel. I mean, just the nicest person, and she knew it all. She knew everybody. She knew everything. And, you know, I was a bit green at the time, for sure, admittedly. And she, you know, she guided me along and says, we're going to do it this way. Sort of gave me the lay of the land. We go, okay, cool. But what people maybe don't know is that when we wrote the script, the kids were like 9, 10, and 11 years, 9 and 10 years old. The characters, we just made, you know, seemed right at the time. And we cast the movie with nine and ten-year-olds. You know, terrific little ensemble. And you never know. It's literally, you just can't tell, at least I can't, until you get all of those kids. We had nine kids, a baseball team, in the room at the same time as an ensemble and tell them, okay, move over here, move over there. It's like a lineup. Sideways, blah, blah, blah. And when we looked at all the nine and ten-year-olds in the room all at the same time, it was instantaneously obvious and Sherry looks at me, she goes, we got to recast. I go, I, we do. They're too young. Hmm. So I fixed some of the script, and uh, we very quickly went looking for 12- and 13-year-olds, and we found most of them pretty quickly. In fact, the very, very first kid I ever interviewed was Mike Vitar, Betty the Jet Rodriguez. Huh. And I said, that's the kid. And Sherry said, that is the kid. He's the one. Hmm. But we're going to look at 1,000 more. And we did. <laughs> You know, and we did that for every kid, and eventually we got them all in the room. And uh, this is over a number of months, and uh, put them together side by side, and there it was. You know, there I could see that photo that's on the announcer's wall right there. And uh, we did a couple of things where we had hired some of the kids, like, for instance, Bertram uh, Grant, uh, Grant Gelt was going to play Yeah Yeah, and uh, Marty York was going to play Bertram, but. You know, it's that thing when you get them all together and you move them around and you ask them to interact, stuff just leaps out at you. And after you do that, the biggest thing I learned about kids is, you know, maybe people do this differently, but I'm I'm not looking to hire a kid, you know, who's a Strasburg kind actor. I'm trying to find a kid who's got a personality, you know, is outgoing and fearless in front of the camera. And then if I need him to do something, I'll show him how to do it. 
which is the benefit of working with kids. It's a lot of downside, but that's the benefit. You can mm. line read them and say, no, no, do it funny like this. And then they put their own spin on it. So what you see in the sandlot is me dialing in all their little honest-to-God personalities. They're, that's them. I mean, if you meet them today, they're just like their characters, you know? Mm-hmm. They're all terrific guys. We all stay in touch. It's, in fact, they're going to come down to where I live in a couple months to do a charity screening for me uh, of, the, of the film. Oh, that's great. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's not easy, you know? Um, and the last guy we got, we had no ham. I had no Hamilton Porter for the picture. We couldn't find the right kid. And uh, we got a lot of kismet that happened during the uh, casting processes. I said, what are we going to do? She goes, we got to find somebody. I'm going to, you know, find him. And the next day, Pat Renna's mom had brought him out to L.A. just at that time uh, from Boston to uh, audition for what they call uh, pilot season for television mm-hmm. shows, right? He wasn't there to be a movie. And somehow Sherry got a hold of him and brought him in, and I walked in, and I looked at him, and I said, dude, can you throw a ball? He goes, yeah. And I go, show me. And he did. I said, you're hired. Get on the plane <laughs> in two days. And there you go. Uh, and he and that turned out, it's funny to say, he turned out to be the most go-to young actor I've ever worked with. Anytime, you know, I, would, I got in trouble, I didn't know what to do in a scene or this or that, I'd say, Pat, you got anything? And he'd have some. You know, uh, uh, so perfect. Sure yeah, I mean, so perfectly cast. I mean, the fat kid is the catcher. I was the fat kid as a catcher. So okay. I, I love your line where you said you're either one of these kids, knew one of those kids, or wanted yeah. to be one of those kids. That's it, yeah. That's the magic, right? That is literally the magic of the Sandlot, the movie. Yes. That's, ex- that's as concise and as distilled as I can get it. You know, having thought about it, lived with it for 30 years. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I've, I've been trying to do that again ever since. <laughs> yeah. This is David Mickey you know? Evans, creator of The Sandlot. I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life, Lessons from Legends. Um, David, you're talking about, uh, we're talking about casting the film, but about giving the actors room to express what kids think. What I thought about in preparing for this, I, I grew up in a family of um, five people, five kids, and so... Although I'm 51, I grew up watching all the same shows my brothers, who were much older than I was, watched. And so, like, Leave it to Beaver was something we watched. The writers for that show, David Mosher and Bob Connolly, I think, they're long gone. But they said in interviews the reason that show worked was because they had kids and they wrote scripts based on things kids would say. And I, that, yeah. is that, that feels like that was a, big part of the the script that you allowed them to kind of be a bit extemporaneous, right? A hundred percent. No. Yeah. And the writing of it, that was a, that was right there. I mean, that was, it it wasn't on a billboard in front of us, but yeah, it was there. Um, because I think what you're getting at is look, a lot of times you see a kid's picture. They're not talking like kids, you know, they're talking about Santa. They're talking like sanitized versions of kids, you know, that the corporate overlords told, you know, the creative team, oh, no, you can't say the S word or whatever. Uh, You know, so, I don't know. No, that's that's why I think one of the many reasons why the movie uh, continues to resonate. Um, You got permission 
uh, to film in Dodger Stadium, but that didn't come easy. It kind of came no. easy at the end, but tell us how that came about. <laughs> this is one of my favorite stories of all time. Uh, so we need Dodger Stadium. It was always written into the script. Obviously, it takes place in San Fernando Valley. <laughs> Excuse me. Southern California in the 70s is the Dodgers. It's, uh, you know, Steve Garvey, Ron Say, Billy Buckner, all these guys. All my heroes. And uh, the producers could not get the Dodgers to allow us to shoot in, in the stadium. They just, I guess they had some policy against mm-hmm. it or something. And we were getting worried, you know, I was. And, and then all the discussions began about, well, maybe we can use, you know, a different stadium. And, maybe look. and I kept saying, guys, Dodger Stadium looks like Dodger Stadium. That's why it's Dodger Stadium. Okay? You know, and it, remember, this was 91, something like that. There was no CG. You know, there was old school VFX, which we could have done, but that's a lot of money. The idea was we didn't have money. So all these ideas get floated. And my director of photography is one of my dearest friends. Is Anthony B. Richmond, Tony Richmond, who's a Brit. And I love working with Brits because Brits never panic. Like, never. And, and Tony comes to me one day. He was probably, Tony's probably 15, 20 years older than me. He says, Hey, mate, I hear you want to get into Dodger Stadium. And I go, Yeah, but I can't. They won't, you know, they won't let us. He goes, Right, come to my house. That was in Southern California at the time. Maybe it was the weekend or something. We were back from. Salt Lake City shooting the picture. So I said, okay. So I go down to Tony's house. He lives off Sunset. And he goes, right, get in the car. And he's got this old late 50s, early 60s MG convertible, you know, left-hand drive. You know? Playing the part. Yeah, well, oh, yeah. Yeah, he's playing the part. Oh, it's beautiful. Absolutely. You guys get have this thrilling ride down Sunset to uh, Dodger Stadium. It's a closed day. Parking lots are empty. Nobody in the stadium. And Tony just, you know, guns it right, right through the, uh, where you buy your tickets, your parking tickets, and they wave at him. And I'm starting to think, oh, he must be a big shot around here. You go around to the clubhouse entrance, security guard, they're all, hey, Tony. I'm like, who is this guy? Wow. And we go into the, you know, inner workings of Dodger Stadium, and Tony's leading the way, and I'm following. Finally, we get to the clubhouse, and he goes, right, mate, in here. And he opens the door, and there's Tommy Lasorda in his office with his feet up on the chair and it's a really hot day and Tony was Tommy Lasorda is in his underwear <laughs> like in his BVDs tidy whities yeah okay and I'm like and Tony just goes he goes right Tommy this is Dave Triple director making a great film he goes hello I go hey Skipper <laughs> and he goes what do you want he goes we want to shoot here for a day he goes when he goes uh, when do you want to shoot Dave I go how about Saturday he goes Okay, Saturday to show up. And we did, Paul, I swear. Oh, wow. We just went there with all the trucks, unloaded, and they had a couple people there. What do you want to do? Oh, we got to, we owned the whole place all day. It was beautiful. Oh, wow. It was so awesome. And that sort of sparked a bit of a friendship with Tommy Lasorda for you? 100%. I mean, I would say we were good acquaintances. He knew who I was every time we met, you know, and I obviously knew who he was because I grew up with him coaching my team. Yeah, uh, but yeah, and I got a few pictures with the skipper uh, the last few years ago when the boys, uh, you know, won the series, and uh, I was there, and so was to- uh, so was Tommy, and uh, I gave him a big hug, 
He was great. That's so great. I've got a friend here in Colorado Springs who's a uh, retired writer, Golf Digest, but covered the Dodgers Angels for 10 years or so. And he knew they were kind of rivals a little bit because Tommy wasn't always happy with his coverage, but he would do press conferences, (laughs) eating big bowls of pasta in his underwear. He has all kinds of stories about that. Um, We don't have a ton of time left, but I'm a red-blooded American boy, you know, former boy. I have to ask about casting Wendy Peppercorn. I mean, all guys, how did that happen? And then how did the boys respond to seeing her? Oh, man. Listen, we did not have a Wendy. So maybe, I don't know, a week or two before it was going to shoot. Pardon my chewing. And, uh, you know, so I said to to Sherry Rhodes, the the casting director, what are we going to get? Who are we going to get to play Wendy? And she goes, I know. I go, okay, well, who is it? And she shows me a picture. I go, wow, <laughs> who's she? And she goes, trust me, she's going to be a big deal, okay? And uh, that's how Wendy Peppercorn, um, Marley Shelton, was cast for the movie. Never met her in person. She showed up about a week or two later. And at the pool, was, I, no, I met her a little bit before that. But anyway, the first time the boys met her was at the pool. Of course, she comes walking out in her, uh, you know, vintage 70s uh, Southern California public pool red suit. Sure. You know, kind of like pre- the precursor to Baywatch, if you will. And, I mean, those those uh, those are all beautiful people when I was a kid, you know, at public pools. The, oh, and they're up, on this, plat- they're up yeah. on this platform like it's a podium or something. It's exactly. Thank you. They're all up there, put on a pedestal to, you know, look at. Like, they're perfect. And uh, she showed up and walked out, and I went, well, she's perfect. That's it. So, in answer to your question about the boys, they were all there at the pool, obviously. And a week or two before this, Chauncey, who plays uh, Squints, you know, he knew this scene was coming up where he was going to have to kiss the girl. And so he started... Uh, tugging on my shirt tails. Hey, we're going to shoot that scene again today, or today, Dave? What do you think? Are we going to shoot it tomorrow? On and on and on, Paul, like, ceaseless. And so that's the greatest thing. Remember, the kids ain't got anxiety. I need them to be anxious and crazy in the scene. Well, I'm just not going to tell them. You know, so he, uh, he worked up a really good head of steam about being really worried about it. And then uh, and on the day... Yeah, uh, how shall I describe this? All the boys stared at her, and they were all, you know, it was like a shiny object, and they were catching flies. <laughs> the mouths were open, okay? They were just like in awe of how beautiful she was. Uh, and, and the rest of it worked out pretty well. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Yeah, that's an iconic scene for sure, and uh, yeah. it uh, it's the reality of how boys think, and uh, that's another reason, why, I think, why the movie is so enduring. Um, David, you mentioned the film you're about to go shoot, Intriguing, a true story. Um, when can we expect to see that in theaters? Or If it all goes well next year, um, we've got half the budget, and we're sort of negotiating to get the other half. Now it looks like the writer's strike is going to hopefully – you know, possibly come to an end uh, before the end of the year. So everything looks like it'll work out good. But, yeah, it's the story of Coach Ed Thomas, arguably the greatest high school football coach in American history. 
Uh, Parkersburg, Iowa, little town, 1,900 people. Uh, sent four kids to the NFL. Lived his entire life in Iowa. Never left except one time because his wife wanted to go on vacation. And uh, decided to retire after 38 years. And uh, out of nowhere, a former student uh, came into the weight room and uh, murdered him. Mm. And uh, so Ed was very fond of apothegms, if you will. I mean, you know, some people, in a negative way, would say dime store philosophy, which I say is still relevant, and it still makes sense, and so does common sense. Anyway, point being, um, I, I took the picture and I wrote it because he used to say, remember, guys, he'd tell his players, what are you going to do this weekend? You know, like on a Friday night, all these young guys full of, you know, uh, you know young guy stuff. And uh, he'd say, do the right thing. Good things happen to good people. And it's true. Mm. Good things do happen to good people. But bad things always uh, also happen to good people. And sometimes horrific, tragic things. Yeah. And so the question is, why? What do you do as a human being? Right? And the answer is, you mentioned that at the beginning of this conversation. It's about forgiveness. You know? How, how deep and how completely can you forgive someone if for no other reason to get on with your life, you know, yeah. and not wallow or, or be beset by grief. Um, so that interests me, uh, looking at that. And uh, I'm really proud of the script, so I hope people like the movie. Uh, well, that is a good place to leave it. David, Mickey Evans, thank you uh, for reminding us of those timeless truths. And we'll look forward to that film and continue to enjoy The Sandlot. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, Paul, thank you very much for having me, mate. I had a great time. Call anytime. Awesome. I'm, I'm at your disposal. Thank great. you. Thanks so much, David. All right. You bet. Thanks for listening to What a Life with Paul Batura. Let him know what you're thinking. Follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Batura, or you can reach out to him on email at paul at paulbatura.com. Most importantly, live a life that emulates the admonition of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings are the inspiration for this show. Writing to believers at Philippi, Paul urged them, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We'll see you next time on What a Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.